Peter's talk is called Watching the Kennedy Trainwreck. The run-up to the 50th anniversary of John Kennedy's assassination has predictably witnessed a flood of books and television documentaries retelling a story that has become so familiar that it almost seems like a nursery rhyme. A very torqued and twisted nursery rhyme. And this prodigality of media, is this prodigality of media really just an efflorescence of despair at the prospect of really understanding this familiar stranger whose death and transfiguration are always so much with us? JFK contains multitudes, but at the same time has a self-canceling opacity. This was alluded to in the cover line given the omnibus review of Kennedy books by Jill Abramson in the New York Times book review a couple of weeks ago. Johnny, we hardly knew you. Even that was too optimistic. Johnny, we don't really know you at all might have been more accurate. Or, if we think about the implications of the recent Mimi Alfred book, Once Upon a Secret, we might opt for Johnny, we don't want to know you. <laughs> Alfred's story is a particularly disheartening trek along the dark side of Camelot. The story of a naive 19-year-old intern deflowered by Jack in Jackie's bed, afterwards flown around the country to be available as a sexual analgesic because, JF, as JFK famously said, he got a headache if he didn't have intercourse at least once a day sent callously and impersonally to an abortionist when it appeared that she might have been impregnated as a result of yet another passing of the presidential torch. <laughs> and probably worst of all, being coerced while naked with JFK in the White House pool to paddle over and give oral service to Dave Powers, Jack's longtime pander and bootlicker and later head of the Kennedy Library who had nothing better to do than sit there and watch. Now this is a vignette whose imagery is difficult to erase. A little closet drama starring a president with a pornographer's sensibility and a pimp's attitude toward women. Stories like Alfred's have appeared with the regularity of water torture during the 38 or so of the last 50 years, forming a jagged counter narrative to the Kennedy myth thrown together immediately after this, the assassination. Jim Pearson is right in evaluating this myth to, to focus on Jackie's breathy statement that it was Camelot. This was the beginning of a sort of Soviet socialist realist take on JFK, a revisionism, revisionism about the man that would also revise our politics. Ira Stoll is right to look at the apparatchiks like Schlesinger and Sorensen as also playing a key role in baking the confection that ignores Jack's conservative instincts. He called it being a realist and transformed him in death to something he had never been in life, a programmatic liberal. Yet for me, another powerful influence in shaping what came to be thought of as the myth before the brutal backstory started coming out was the Kennedys' own mythomania. Honoring their own fallen dead, inter- and intragenerational, 
and redefining them so that they were heroes beckoning us toward a better world was something that began en famille long before Jack's death. The first was Joe Jr., Jack's elder brother, and the one old Joe Kennedy envisioned as taking the Klan over the finish line in its assault on America. Himself having fallen short because of his Irish insurrectionist impatience and his parvenu's greediness and overreaching. You know the story. Joe Jr. undertook a virtual suicide mission in 1944 against uh, German superguns on the French coast and his bomber exploded before reaching the target. The family quickly moved to entomb this act as a sacrifice in the name of bravery and idealism. Perhaps it was the first, but probably not the second. The major reason young Joe undertook the mission was because Jack, whose designated role in his generation was that of second fiddle, had upstaged him as the Kennedy most likely to succeed by his ambiguous adventure in PT 109, which MacArthur briefly considered might be worth a court-martial, but which old Joe, using his media contacts, managed to sell as something like a modern version of the crossing of the Delaware. Old Joe, whose vulgar courtship of FDR had gotten him the ambassadorship in England, he, he was, by the way, Hitler's favorite ambassador, which he quickly undid by consorting with Nancy Astor and the Cliveden set and trying to make sure that America didn't annoy Hitler, privately railed against Roosevelt and his kikes for getting the US into combat and killing his favorite son. Within the family, and as far he was, as he was able publicly, he transfigured Joe Jr., who was in fact his carbon copy, apparently brutal, brutally charming at times, but otherwise one-dimensional and something of a bully, into a cause demanding vindication by the Kennedys that he left behind. The family constructing what might be seen as the first rough draft of the Kennedy myth made this death into a call of duty. They must all honor Joe Jr.'s sacrifice by trying to achieve what he certainly would have if not prematurely and unfairly taken. They would complete Joe Jr.'s mission. It was a heavy burden. Even Jack, who had spent his youth capering around the heavy-footed heir apparent and who was the least sentimental of all the Kennedys, was affected. In a speech to a local chapter of the VFW, named after his brother following the 1946 congressional victory that put him on the road to the White House, he came to the line, apparently inserted with a Freudian slip by a speechwriter. Greater love hath no man than this, to lay down his life for his brother. And Kennedy broke down crying and was unable to finish. Thus began the family's internal drama of the eternal return. The old man used his power to get James Forrestal to name a newly commissioned destroyer, the Joseph P. Kennedy, Jr. As a young midshipman just out of Harvard, Bobby insisted on serving on that boat, and the USS Joseph P. Kennedy stood in the front line of the blockade during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Kennedy's mythomania went into overdrive after the assassination. The old man had been taken out of the picture by a stroke by then, but Bobby was more than equal to the task in creating a version of Jack 
that would be worthy of Jack's memory. Bobby played a key role in formulating the notion that his brother died for idealism itself and left behind an unfinished agenda which was an indenture for right-thinking people everywhere. Bobby made Jack a crusader for civil rights. Jack, who once snidely referred to James Baldwin as Martin Luther Queen, <laughs> he made Jack liberally correct, according to the evolving definition of that notion, a precursor to the better world that he himself quested after as he sought to be the tribune of the downtrodden and played his dangerous game of footsie with the hallucinatory radicalism of the 1960s and its alleged possibilities, which is why, perhaps, Tom Hayden made a point of weeping ostentatiously at his funeral. He was merely going where the meanings of Jack's death and memory sent him, where Jack himself would have gone with so much more class and consequence if he had not been taken from us so early. And then, in the weird dialectic working inside the family, after Bobby himself was killed, Teddy, always the dangling modifier of the family, <laughs> tried to insert, that's a good line, isn't it? <laughs> tried to insert Bobby's effort to lasso the 1960s zeitgeist into the new politics that came about after Hayden and the others who had destroyed the Democratic Party in Chicago in 1968 inhabited its corpse in 1972. Teddy went a step further in the cynicism business by always appropriating the term liberal, which previously they had always regarded with loathing, particularly when it was prefaced by Cold War. Teddy now made RFK Saint Bobby, just as Bobby had made JFK into Saint Jack. He inflated the Ken Kennedy myth as he himself became smaller as a representative figure of the new liberalism, which increasingly also called itself progressive thereby presenting itself as a permanent social reform, a construction project for utopia, whose foremen would be people of color and women, but whose general contractors would be the limousine liberals like himself. Having acceded to the process by which his brothers became holy ghosts of this new version of the Democratic Party, Teddy, because of his own limitations, settled into the role of ward healer and party hack once occupied by his paternal grandfather, the barkeep. Under Teddy's guidance, <clears throat> the Kennedy family's ambition, as opposed to the myth it continued to promote, contracted into a spare lesson about how all politics is actually local. They once began in Massachusetts and then stormed the citadel of power in Washington, DC. Now they stormed back <clears throat> into Massachusetts and made that the scope of their hope. No wonder that the only remaining Kennedy in public office, Joseph III, grandson of Bobby and son of the plodding Joseph II, now presides over a family business that has shrunk during the myth-making and attempts to revise and reclaim JFK from Sears and Roebuck to a storefront in Roxbury. In 1980, what turned out uh, to be his pr premature swan song, Teddy orated, Quote, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream will never die. The dream, he mentions, is, of course, the impossible dream, Bobby's appropriation from the man of La Mancha that trumped even Jack's appropriation from Camelot. The hope became the hope-a-dope of Barack Obama, whom Teddy slavishly supported. The cause is no more or less ambitious 
then cutting everyone off at exactly knee height, and then bending them over the knee of government. No wonder the Clintons and Obama worship at Jack's grave in Arlington on the 50th uh, anniversary. He has been tweaked and twisted into the FDR of the party they control, father of the raw deal. There's much we still don't know about the Kennedys, but we can be sure of one thing. Jack would have hated all the huffing and puffing of this familial Hegelianism. He depended on Bobby to be his hatchet man, to give him plausible deniability by supervising all the black ops of his administration. But it was when his younger brother was being most liberal that Jack regarded him as most, being most a pain in the ass. He once told a mutual friend who arrived in the Oval Office one afternoon to find Bobby sulking in the corner uh, in a star-crossed mood, oh, don't worry about him. He's all choked up about Martin Luther King and his Negroes today. After his 1952 Senate victory, when people from Massachusetts began writing letters chiding him from being, for being insufficiently liberal, Jack's acerbic response was, I'd be happy to tell them I'm not a liberal at all. To him, liberals were like Adlai Stevenson, for whom he had an undisguised contempt. When he was looking at the appointments for his new administration and the subject of the State Department came up, he said, I know <clears throat> how they are over there. Not queer exactly, but sort of like Adlai. He was exultant when the columnist Joe Alsop said that he was like Stevenson with balls. No wonder we hardly know Johnny today considering all the people inside his family, perhaps even more than outside, who have desecrated his corpse. Of course, not being known was Jack's intention. He didn't want to be known because it was in that zone between shadow and act, what he seemed and what he was, that his freedom lay. That remarkable blitheness of spirit, which was real, was in part the squid's ink he used to create a cloud of unknowing that allowed him to, to escape. His mode might not have risen to the status of silence, exile, and cunning, another famous Irishman's way of holding life at bay. Of course, that's an allusion to James Joyce and Stephen Dedalus. But he did create a lesser but still significant artifact of detachment, irony, and dissimulation. 30 years ago, I spent quite a lot of time looking at the process that had produced Jack Kennedy and which he, in turn, inadvertently, as it worked out, had produced. It was a book that looked at the Kennedys from the, their first arrival in America to the children of Jack and Bobby and the others of their generation, some of them now already claimed by the Kennedy curse, as the family calls it, which since that first death of Joe Jr., they promoted as the price paid by those who dared to challenge the gods in behalf of humankind. Vivid personalities, all of them, but none so vivid as Jack. The authoritative book about him, the book whose absence Jill Abramson in her review lamented, will remain caught in the limbo where the myth fights its losing battle with the counter-myth. But while Jack's story will remain the greatest story never told, there are some things, small and random perhaps, that can be said about him on this 50th anniversary of his passing that day in our lives when we all remember exactly where we were. The first thing I always think about is the most obvious. Jack was shaped by sickness. 
It was with him always. Robert Dalek has cataloged his ailments very well. Yet it is a story of more than medicine tried and failed, diagnoses made and retracted, diseases advancing and controlled. Jack's sickness was, in a profound sense, character forming. Jack always heard time's winged chariot hurrying near and tried to cancel out the noise with an audacious act of personality. Because of his sickness, from an early age, he adopted the credo later expressed so well by the anti-hero in Blade Runner, the candle that burns half as long burns twice as bright. His father had made Hollywood his whorehouse and Shangri-La where he went, when he went there in the 1920s to prove that he could beat the pants, beat the pants pressers, his most courteous term for Jews as, at the movie game. He was the one, uh, one of the first, to really understand the essence of the dream factory. It was a place where you could get a new name, a new face, a new biography, and voila, become a new person. Jack, who also spent time there after his father established his forward operating base on Rodeo Avenue, saw all this and more. Then there was the cognate matter of sex. After being touched so traumatically by platoons of doctors in his youth, he became a touch-me-not. He was like Gore Vidal, otherwise regarded as an enemy by the Kennedys, who said that sex was one thing and one thing only, ejaculation with as many appealing partners as possible. It was the same with Jack. It was the spasm that told him that he was alive. He was a predator in the way the undead are, requiring constant infusions of flesh because otherwise he would not know for sure that he was alive. He was also a predator because predation was in the air he breathed at home. Rose, his mother, was a figure of contempt. My mother was a nothing, Jack said to more than one of his friends, because she let the old man humiliate her, not only by having women, uh, but by semi-living with them in the house as his secretaries. One woman I spoke to all those years ago who had a relationship with Jack told me that they had long conversations about women in which he, like Freud, kept returning to the question about what women want from marriage, from family, from love. He wanted to know, she believed, because at some obscure level he wanted to be better. During one of these maundering talks, she asked him why he acted like his father in the compulsive and often uh, rote philandering, why he avoided real relationships, why he took a chance on scandal just when his political career was taking off. He thought for a moment and told her, I don't know really, I just can't help it. She said that as he said this, a look of deep sadness passed over his face, the look, she said, of a little boy about to cry. Sick in bed for long periods, Jack became a reader. This was a perilous undertaking in a house of anti-intellectuals, people for whom the unexamined life was not only worth living, but a necessity, and whose M.O. when they were together, Jack acidly, Jackie acidly compared to that of gorillas rolling around together and picking at each other's fleas. King Arthur and his knights was among the boys' literature uh, uh, that Jack read, of course, and Pilgrim's Progress, and when he was 13, Winston Churchill's The World Crisis, this last a transgressive act of admiration for a man his father thought, uh, uh, 
thought of as even more of a warmonger than Roosevelt and his kikes. He had to keep this bookishness under wraps lest he be roughed up inside the family, but it was always there. I read more books in a week than Adlai reads in a year, he said with some asperity when someone, probably Eleanor Roosevelt, compared their intellectual backgrounds to Jack's disadvantage. Partly because of his reading, he was a romantic. Once he was talking to Lady Diana Cooper on the subject, uh, and the subject turned to his sister Eunice. She has a wild originality of countenance, Cooper said. Jack, immediately recognizing this as a Byron, as Byron on his lover, Lady Cap Caroline Lamb, replied with Lady Caroline's words about Byron. And is she also mad, bad, and dangerous to know? Jack saw Byron as a kind of kindred spirit. Byron, too, had that conflict between irony and romanticism. He, too, had the, the, a, the disability, his club foot, and the premonition of early death. And he had the same obsession with women. Jack was always his father's son. As someone told me, Jack's biggest problem from the day he was born until the day he died was not the Cuban Missile Crisis or the Bay of Pigs or any of that. It was the old man. Old Joe always wanted to be an inside player, but enjoyed his status as consummate outsider. For his sons, he was tough and authentic, willing to play outside the boundary lines, someone who'd actually done something with his life. They were irresistible drawn, irresistibly drawn to such people. All the quarterbacks they pulled, they palled with, and the military heroes like John Gavin and Max Taylor, whom they appointed as aides. But old Joe was always the prototype of the guy who had walked the walk. His boys liked all those tales. Who knows how many of them are true about the Irish thugs fighting in the snow on the Canadian border with Meyer Lansky's East Side Boys over shipments of bootleg in which 11 or 12 were said to have been killed. While Joe Jr. was alive, he was Jack's heat shield vis-a-vis -vis old Joe. Jack could eat his cake and have it too, being the family, uh, family's unlikely success story, but also having the freedom of, freedom of maneuver as far as picking a fate for himself was concerned. Because he was such a reader, he said he wanted to be a writer, but after the brother's death, the old man's obdurate gaze fell on him. He said sadly to a, fr to a friend, I guess dad's going to be the ventriloquist, so that leaves me to be the dummy. In 1946, so skinny and yellow looking that someone said he looked like Mahatma Gandhi, Jack dragged himself gamely through the process of running for the congressional seat once occupied by his grandfather, Honey Fitz. At one point, Eunice saw him sitting all frail and crumpled up in a corner and said to the old man, Daddy, do you really think Johnny can be a congressman? The old man smiled. You must remember, it's not what you are that counts, but what people think you are. This statement summarizes the Kennedys' contribution to American politics. Jack eventually came into his own in the late 1950s, removing his father from the command center of his life but he always honored him for pioneering this foundational concept. Jack wanted to do something big as president, something comparable to FDR's accomplishment in winning the war. In a conversation with Nixon, he once said of foreign affairs, that's really the only important thing for a president to handle, isn't it? 
I mean, who gives a shit if the minimum wage is $1.15 or $1.35? He was well aware of the competition with the Soviet Union and of what he faced with Khrushchev, whose snarling rages somewhat resembled the old man's. But in some sense, his real target were the so-called romantic revolutionaries of the post-colonial era, Ho Chi Minh, Sukarno, and most of all, Castro, who monopolized the imagination of the early 1960s. He resented them in the way that the old man had resented the black back bay Brahmins who had kept the Kennedys down. He wanted to outdo them at their own game. This was why he had adopted Walt Rostow as his Marx, as he called him. It was why he embraced counterinsurgency and special ops and brought Edward Lansdale, the model for Graham, Graham Greene's Quiet American, into the fold to dis, uh, and decided to focus, using Bobby as his id, on using Operation Mongoose to get even and get rid of Castro after the Bay of Pigs fiasco. It was why he said on his way to Vienna, I go as the leader of the most revolutionary nation on earth. On the limo ride to the inauguration, Jack had peppered Ike with questions about D-Day, having just read and become obsessed with Cornelius Ryan's The Longest Day. Ike disappointed his desire for st stories of daring do by replying in a bored, tone, uh, a bored tone of voice that the Allies had carried the day only because they had superior meteorologists. But Eisenhower did predict in their conversation that there would be a conflict in Laos. Jack heard him, but didn't think that was the place for the US to make a statement. After finally slowing down the efforts to oust Castro, efforts that had brought the family closer to the mob than his father ever had been in running whiskey, he turned his attention from Cuba to Vietnam because it was a country, as he pointed out, uh, half of whose population had a reason to hate communists, a place where all those desires to outdo the romantic revolutionaries could pay off. These are some of the things I still think about when I think of Jack Kennedy. The last thing I think about is his fixation with, with death, this rendezvous that he thought he was going to have to keep at every stage of his life from the time when he was a little boy. A little bit in love with night, he talked about being weighed right before and right after death to determine if the soul had any measurable mass. Even after all the steroids and feel-good uppers allowed him to mimic a normal life, he thought about death. During his run for the White House, he told Joe Alsop that he didn't think he'd live to see 45. He once asked his aide, Ted Reardon, hired because he had been a college roommate of elder brother Joe Jr., what was the best way to die? Old age, Reardon replied without hesitation. No, Jack replied after thinking about it for a minute, in war, that's the way to go. He had this conversation in dozens of different ways with dozens of others. There was a fleeting interest in the connection between death and martyrdom. Once he closely quizzed the Civil War historian David Donald about whether Lincoln would have been considered a great president if he hadn't been assassinated. But most of the time, it was just death. How it would come, how to greet it, what it would be like. It gave him an aura. Jack could unman his tough guy friends by singing September song on the presidential lot, as he sometimes did. In performances, one of them compared to a death chant. The subject came up with Senator George Smathers on a fishing trip. 
What's the better way to go, freezing to death, drowning, or getting shot? Jack wanted to know. Not long after, a few weeks before Dallas, when he was sunning himself one day at Palm Beach, he asked the same question again, this time of his friend, Massachusetts Congressman Torbett McDonald. What's the best way to go? Without giving McDonald a chance to say anything, he quickly answered his own question. A gun. You never know what, what's hit you. A gunshot is the perfect way. Thus, Peter. Thank you.